This is NPR News. The program you're about to hear mentions suicide. If you or a loved one are struggling, you can get free confidential support by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. For all of the shared rituals and community traditions that we attach to loss, a wake, a funeral, sitting shiva, building shrines, there is a solitariness to grief. Its shape may be singular, the map may look different, depending on who's holding it. It took Ivan Maisel many months to comprehend that when his son Max died, vanishing at the edge of a northern lake, his body found two months later. Mr. Maisel's new memoir is the story of how he came to understand that grief is love. It is the materialization of love. I had to learn, he writes, that grief is permanent. I had to learn that accepting it helps but doesn't make it disappear. I can't tell you, he adds, how long it took me to see grief as love. Ivan Maisel is a sports journalist and spent many years at ESPN. His new book is titled, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye. He's with us today from Mobile, Alabama. And Ivan, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you. Carrie, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You have a powerful image of what all-encompassing grief is like. You write about this later in the book. The force of grief is inexorable, you say, an inflated ball rising through water. You know, and I wondered when that, that image came to you as you thought about how to communicate this experience. I just uh, was trying to think of something that would not be stopped from doing what it intended to do. And so that's what popped into my head. I don't know whether it was from being in the pool with my children back when they were little or or what, but that that was the exactly the sort of uh, unstoppable propulsion that I was thinking of. You know, what that image said to me was that grief is not linear. And I think we tend to think of it as something linear. I will go through this stage and then I'll go into that stage. And what that image says to me is it can catch you unawares. It can emerge kind of when you least expect it. And as you said, it's inexorable. It is unstoppable. Does that make sense? It does, Carrie. We we have a cartoon on the bulletin board in our laundry room, and I'm I have to paraphrase, but it's essentially it's the one side of it is a straight line, and it says this is what I read about grief, and the other side looks like a Jackson Pollock painting or the you know the etch a sketch of a three year old, and it says this is what my grief was like, and that. That made a lot of sense to me and my wife, Meg. I think, you know, all we said to one another and all we said to our two daughters is that, you know, you do it 
well, however you need to do it, but you have to do something to excavate the grief out of you because you have to process it. If you don't, if you don't control when it comes out of you, then it will control when it comes out of you, and that may not be convenient to the rest of your life at that moment. So uh, we didn't really judge one another how we did it, which was important, but we made sure that we, that we did it. I'm going to come back to the judging, because I know that's a really important element of this, but that, that's why I, I use the word singular. There is a singularity to how an individual will experience grief. And your map may look quite different from the map that someone else has used to enter, you know, this kind of territory. But but I also, and you would know this better than I, I feel like we're in a culture that says, this is what is expected, this is what we expect of you, and this is what it'll look like when you emerge on the other side of it. What do you think? Well, I think there's two parts to that. One, all grief is individual because every relationship is different. You know, my, my wife and I, upon reflection, I, my daughters, I think, would look at us and think, oh, my God, they lost a child. And, and we look at our daughters and say, oh, my God, they lost a sibling. My wife and I have nine siblings, and they are all alive. That's one part of it. You should go into it understanding that everybody is different. Uh, as, and as far as societal expectations, I think you, there are, sure, it's like every other thing in, uh, in society. I think there are some sort of rules of how you should do it or what you should say in public or how you should emote. And I felt completely uncompelled, if that's a word, to follow those rules. I didn't really care uh, what people thought or if I violated their sense of protocol in doing this because whatever – I kind of felt like whatever violations I committed paled before the actual fact that I lost my son, you know, that my son died. And that had – was part and parcel of the the decision to be public about it because I felt it was more important to be public about it than to adhere to that societal sort of uh, you should be you know solemn and 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 keep it to yourself, especially regarding suicide I think part of what this societal frame is is because we are and I was talking with another author about this a couple of weeks ago we are so deeply uncomfortable with yes. showing the signs of what loss means what loss is I mean we tend to think about this as something private you said yes that occurs to you grief is painful and nobody leaps into pain that I'm aware of. And uh, I think people, not only are you, you're, you're in discomfort because you lost somebody, but people are discomforted by the fact of being around grief. And that's really 
had a lot to do with why I wrote the book. I mean, I certainly didn't want Max to be defined by how he died. I wanted to tell tell some things about Max. But speaking as someone who was terribly uncomfortable with grief and terribly uncomfortable uncomfortable with trying to speak to someone who was grieving and then being thrust into the role of griever and into receiving the discomforting <laughs> uh, comments from people who clearly didn't know what to say, how to say it, and wanted to be anywhere else but say where they were saying it. I thought the term I used in the book and that it occurred to me was if I can be a docent through my experience, then maybe people wouldn't be as uncomfortable. They understood what this was like, and, and as best as I could convey it, because you can, it, as you say, everything's individual, and it's difficult to, you know, to explain to somebody because nobody wants. Everybody is so scared of having a, a of losing a child, and and they don't really want to discuss it because it seems so painful. But I didn't have a choice. You know, it happened to me, so this is what my experience has been, and. I just thought it'd be, if I can explain it, maybe it would do some good. I know there is more, how how should I put this, kind of distant acknowledgement of that suicide is happening, rates are increasing, that we're losing, we're losing a lot of people. We're including young people to suicide. Yes. But I wonder if when everything you've just talked about this this kind of discomfort this let me keep grief at a distance the people you were interacting with when you add suicide to that i wonder if you saw a, a different kind of dimension to the way people were willing to interact with what you were saying or experiencing oh sure you know there's sort of a uh, scarlet letter quality to suicide uh, that we are just learning as a society to shed. You know, the point is, yeah, there, there is a mark on somebody who, you know, has somebody who loses someone to suicide. And what, you know, another thing that I thought was important was treating mental illness as an illness. If Max had died of cancer, people would react differently. And I had the great benefit, Carrie, of having a psychologist explain to me in the first few days that you can't make sense of this because you think rationally. And this was an irrational act by somebody who could not think rationally. And that assuaged me of a lot of guilt uh, that I might have taken on. And maybe it was just a get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't know. But I, I certainly have sort of used that as a foundational tenet of how I approached the fact that Max ended his life. And people don't know what to say, and they, they stumble, and they, he, you know, they hesitate. But I just thought, put it out there. Mental illness needs sunlight. And quite selfishly, I didn't want to have to remember who I told what to. You know, I had enough to do putting one foot in front of the other those first few days. 
And to think that all of a sudden I've got to figure out, remember who has top secret clearance and, you know, who we're only telling some things to, you know, oh, you're a second cousin. Oh, wait a minute. I, am I supposed to tell you everything? I didn't care. It didn't matter. And if if there was some sort of mark against Max or, or us because he died by suicide, that, that was, I wasn't going to take that on. I was going to let that, you know, the, whoever thought that, they, they can deal with that. Was that um, psychologist that, that you just mentioned, was that Deborah? No, Deborah is my therapist who has been a great help to me. This is a woman named Robin Gerwich who is on the faculty at Duke, uh, the Duke School of Medicine. And Robin is one of the leading – she was in at Oklahoma State when the Murrah Building was blown up. And she is a leading expert on – children and terroristic trauma. Robin and I grew up together here in Mobile, and she called me right after Max disappeared, and she talked to me for 90 minutes, and it really did me a world of good, just sort of explaining a mental illness. And I think what she actually said was, unless someone tells you that at this time, on this date, at this place, I'm going to attempt to end my life, you can't stop them. And that was what a gift. I mean, I just to have somebody explain it to me in a way to make me understand that this was much bigger than any parental guilt I may carry, which of course I do, but I don't blame myself for the fact that he was sick. You know, Ivan, it sounds like you reached out to and ended up being surrounded by some remarkably wise women, because I made a note of what your own therapist, Deborah, said to you. I think this is just, well, let, let's, let's let the, the audience ponder this for a minute. She tells you, um, all that love could do was done. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, well, okay. Tell me yeah. how, how you heard that, what that says to you. Well, even you reading it now, I feel this great sense of of uh, relief and and just the tension breaking. You know, Deborah has known my family for a very long time, and she understood that we were not a any more dysfunctional than any other family. <laughs> you know, we're not a dysfunctional family, and she understood that that Meg and I really tried to do the best we could that we knew how to do for our children. And maybe it was deeper than that, what she was trying to convey, uh, and, and, and more therapeutic and, and soothing. But that was, uh, it was a lovely sentiment and clearly what we took to heart. And it's still, as I'm proving right now, I still find it very soothing. I mean, she could have said, you did everything you could. But I love the, the fact that she put love at the center of that, that, that advice and that observation. All that love could do was done. I mean, I would think that's freeing, too, for you. Freeing is a, yes, that's a, that's a very good way to put it. Honestly, Carrie, I, I have received such benefit from people wiser than I am on the subject of mental illness and and 
but this is more, I mean, Deborah is different. You know, she's a therapist and helped me in so many ways over a very long time. And especially when we needed her, you know, we came home after a week in Rochester after Max disappeared and I called her when we got back and said, hey, Deborah, do you want to just come over here and move in with us or can we make an appointment? (laughs) We were there a lot, I'll put it that way. One of the things that I understood from your realization of grief as love is that 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 awareness, that knowledge was not going to take away the pain, but it was going to give you a way to understand the meaning of what you were living through. Now, maybe, maybe Deborah was helpful for that. Maybe you came to this just through the kind of introspection that you've done. I, how, how would you put that process of realizing that this deep sadness and this grieving was really about, and I think I used the word, the materialization of love. How did you come to that? I, I understood the permanence of it. You know, Meg had the phrase that we're not doing prepositions, you know, that grief was not something we would get through or get mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. You know, the permanence of it, something my mother said to me in the, uh, a few weeks after Max disappeared, that it, it just is, and you, you know, she just said it just is, and that helped me. And, and the, there was a poet, Edward Hirsch, who wrote a lovely poem about his son Gabriel who died, and he had the image of grief as a bag of cement you carry up a hill that never ends, which is... A, a, a haunting image, certainly, but it was one that I could appreciate just in the sense that it made me understand you're not going to get rid of this, so you've got to figure out how to live with it. And once I did that and I began to think about, you know, as I was thinking and thinking about grief and and the amount of pain that I was in, it just dawned on me that the amount of pain I was in was commensurate to the amount of love I have for Max. And look, I'm I'm a journalist, I'm a writer and you know you you try to pare out extraneous words and and thoughts and get to the nut of something and I just kept thinking about it and I thought, well, grief is love. It's a very painful form of love, but you only feel this because you loved him so much. And that you know that really helped. Ivan, I'm I'm curious about what you think of um, something that David Kessler, who worked for many years with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who of course created this framework of stages of grief, um, he endured the loss of a son. He's done a lot of contemplation and introspection on grief. And he said this, you can't, about the meaning of grief, you can't use it to spiritually bypass the pain you have to go through. You're going to be in pain. You've got to let the pain happen. Meaning will be the cushion, but you've got to feel pain. The meaning is what we do after. What occurs to you about that? It's lovely, A. B, as someone, Carrie, who studiously 
avoided pain and went to great lengths to avoid pain for you know, 55 years and up to the point Max died. It was a it was a big step for me to get to that point of understanding I can't avoid this. You know, I've got to, as we were discussing, I've got to learn to live with it. I think with the passage of time, you begin to understand that you're not going to be in that much pain every minute. That you you know you catch yourself having a few good minutes. You catch yourself having a good hour. Eventually a good day, so that when the pain then returns, it, you understand, well, it's not permanent. Just let it happen, and you're going to have another good day. You're going to have another good moment. And that's how I built my relationship to it, and it, it's, it was very helpful. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a conversation with Ivan Maisel. He's a sports journalist, spent many years at ESPN, and he has written a book called I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye about the death of his son and what the family endured and his realization and awareness about what that grief that followed was all about. Ivan, I want to talk about some of Max's photography, but I don't want to get to that until we know a little more about who he was. <laughs> so can you can you do that? Sure. Max uh, was our middle child, has an older sister and a younger sister. He was, you know, I, I use the adjective quirky as shorthand. I mean, Max was somewhere on the spectrum and that's as detailed a diagnosis as we ever got, and we got plenty of them. He was not real good with social cues, and as such, he was he was a little shy and a little withdrawn. I would say he's a lot shy and a lot withdrawn. I think he just put up walls because he had trouble with his peers understanding what they did and you know and how they operated. He had no interest in sports, which I decided was proof that God has a sense of humor. Because <laughs> you are, we should say, because you love sports and you've covered it and it's it's a big part of your life. Oh, I grew up, you know, I grew up learning to read on the sports pages and I <laughs> learned how to do division by figuring out earned run averages, you know, so, <laughs> okay. I, you know, he was, uh, yeah, I just assumed my son would would be as nuts about it as I was. And of course, he had very little interest. Uh, so I had to figure out how do I build a bridge to this kid and did it through humor. Uh, I got him uh, on Looney Tunes and Marx Brothers at an early age. And he had a terrific dry wit. He loved Bob and Ray, who are also big in our house. And he as most kids his age, was big into video games and anime and found the camera. Mm -hmm. And same as with his other interpersonal relationships, he did not like to take photos of people. He did not like to have his picture taken. But he was really good at taking landscape photos and architectural shots. And he just had a different eye. 
and he was majoring in photography at RIT in Rochester, which is a, you know, Rochester being the once the home of Eastman Kodak. Photography is a big curriculum at RIT, and he was succeeding in it, at least according to his his professors. But he had no self-confidence and no self-worth, and he just fretted constantly that he wouldn't be able to finish a, an assignment, finish a class, graduate, get a job, and it I, they just all sort of overwhelmed him. Is it... I got the impression that Max was in the middle of a of a project and that his professors were very encouraging when he when he disappeared. Is that right? Well, he he had one professor in particular, a, a terrific guy named Frank Cost who really kept an eye on Max and he later told us that Max reminded him of one of his children. He said that the first class Max took from him, that in the middle middle of the semester, Max was fretting and Frank was concerned, but that you know Max found a way. And then by the end of the semester, he was one of three uh, students that that Frank called out at the end of the class for the for the work they had done and the progress they had made. And mm-hmm. Max was RIT has a huge component of hearing impaired students. And so note-taking is a big deal. It's a big job in those classes. And Max was the note-taker in, in the class he was taking with Frank in, in his last semester. And Frank said when he didn't show up for class on that morning after his disappearance was discovered, he knew something was wrong. He said, because Max was a rule follower, Carrie. He did everything he was supposed to do. He was the most dependable of our three children in terms of chores. It wasn't, it didn't turn into a, you know, the Kennedy-Nixon debates when you asked him to do something. (laughs) And uh, not that I'm casting aspersions on my daughters, mind you. Uh, (laughs) Or their questioning authority. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. But he, you know, he, he, maybe he was just used to being told to do what to do because, you know, he had parents and an older sister. I I don't know. But I I think uh, he was succeeding in, in his curriculum he just didn't he didn't know that um you have a book with you and i'd like you to open the book to that photograph it's a portrait that max took of you i find this really revealing oh what about it well your face is in repose first let's let's talk about how max broached the idea of doing a portrait of you. This is for for a class assignment, is that right? Yes. What did he say? He called me before his winter break and said, I've got an assignment and I think it would work. I could do it better if we went to Colorado over break. Uh, My family has taken a lot of trips to Colorado to ski, and Max grew up going there. And he said, do you want to go, you know, would you – would that be okay? And I, I, you know, anytime your college age child asks you to do something with them, you say yes. You know, so I was like, of course. We were in the house in Colorado, and he said, I have to take a portrait, and I need you to sit for it, and you can't smile. 
And, and I said, okay, you know, for whatever you need. So I sat there and he was, you know, he was nervous, even though it was me, you know, he, and it took him at least 30 minutes to get the lighting set up the way he thought was okay. And I just sat there and, and waited and waited and waited. And, and he finally started taking photos and never showed me the photos that I recall. Maybe he did. And he wouldn't show us any of his work despite our pestering until finally Meg threatened him, you know, you are going to, you know, for Hanukkah, you are going to give me uh, some of your photos. And he bought a (laughs) digital frame and he put like 40 on them. Mm, Wow. But when we went to his dorm room after he disappeared or his apartment on campus, there were stacks of boxes of photographic paper that were filled with his images. And in there were this photo, and our nephew was out there at the same time, and he took photos of him. And, of course, every other thing, he took He took a lot of photos. A moment on the boxes of, of photos. Did you Did you go through those pretty early on? After you knew Max had disappeared, or had you had you waited? I guess I'm curious about what they what they told you about your son. Well, we went through them hoping they would tell us something. And I remember that first week we took them back to my my brother in law had a house on Lake Ontario, about a mile west of where Max walked out onto the ice, and that is really why we went there every summer for a family reunion. And Max felt comfortable, A, in Rochester, and B, in that particular area. So when we went back to the house, we just laid photos out on a on a big table. And they were all large prints, usually 11 by 14, if memory mm-hmm. serves. Mm-hmm. And just so people could see the fact that he was good at this. And uh, he had an aunt who was a terrific photographer, and she, well, all of us were just really impressed. And we just, we put the photo, we wanted to see his work, A, and to answer your question, and B, we wanted the family to see his work as well, to see that he was, despite his protestations, that he was good at this. Mm -hmm. Let's come back to the portrait. So he fusses around with the viewfinder and the and the photography gear for 30 minutes, and then he starts to snap. What was he saying to you? I mean, this is somewhat of an unusual experience for a, a parent and a child, right? You know, Max was, uh, as I said, he was uncomfortable and a lot of one-on-one relationships. You know, it was tough for me to have any sort of meaningful conversation with Max. He didn't like to talk a whole lot. And uh, I think to your point, the fact that he was now in charge of this uh, one-on-one situation was different for him. Uh, I don't think he was nervous about telling me what to do. I think he was nervous about doing it and being in charge and fretting that he wouldn't do it correctly. I was very cognizant of being a good model so I just whatever he told me to do I did I just remember after a while going you know 
I'm not comfortable anymore. I hope he gets something he likes, you know, because it ended up being about 45 minutes in this chair. Here's what I see, Ivan. And and I don't buy, I was just trying to do what I was told because that, <laughs> <laughs> your, your face is, as you've noted, in repose, but your expression is really alive with emotion. I mean, I feel like I... I feel like I could not have read the book to that point and still understood some of the dynamics between you and your son, your pride, your discomfort, this idea that you've ceded some control to your son, you know, maybe some of the discomfort that your son is experiencing in taking that kind of control, his expectations. I don't think I'm projecting here. Ivan, what do you think? I I think you're a lot smarter than I am. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that it takes an outsider, maybe. Yeah, perhaps. And he was, let's see, this was the year before he died. So he was 20 years old. And and Carrie, Max was emotionally younger than his age. Uh, and so this was, and probably because he was so awkward with people, you know, he didn't have a lot, you know, it took him, it just took him longer. And I think uh, that may come into play here too in that sense of, of the roles being uh, different than they typically were. So I've wondered if you have thought about what Max saw when he looked through the viewfinder at your face. I mean, we see the, the product of that. But have you given some thought to what he saw? Well, I think not about this photo in particular, but really about everything, because he just would not show us his work it it was frustrating as a parent to not be able to revel in in your child's achievements you know but that's the point he didn't view it as an achievement and he was so uh, private about his product uh, there were a few things there were a few photos that he thought were good enough that he put them on the internet for sale. But I would love to know what what he thought of this because I think it's a good photo and I think a lot of what he his work was good and he just he didn't let us in that way. It's a shame. You write about not fully understanding that your son was experiencing this kind of despair. And I think you made a reference earlier to that there is inevitably some guilt when someone you love dies by suicide. What have you done with that? What, what kinds of observations have you, have you made within your family about it? I think the hardest part as a parent is the, just the finite amount of experiences that you have. Obviously, you screw up with all your children in various ways, but at least with, you know, even as the, our girls are in their 20s now, you still have interactions with them and you 
try to make amends and compensate and you grow from your interactions and you move on. And we don't get that with Max. We have a bowl full of of experiences with him. And the only way that that bowl can grow is, is when people come and tell us their stories about Max, which, you know, as we were discussing earlier, people are reticent at the least to speak about him to us. And we want that. In terms of, of guilt in particular, for the reasons I explained earlier, I didn't take that on. Meg is the mother of a son. She had a much closer emotional relationship with him. You know, I think she carries some guilt. And we are all clear that this is my story. This is not Meg's story or the girl's story. And I have tried to explain to her why I, you know, that I don't think, I certainly don't blame her and I don't think she should carry any guilt. But that's how she has dealt with it. Do you think Max was in touch with the, I want to say, I guess, the pervasiveness of the despair that he was experiencing? Absolutely. Really? I didn't expect you to say that. Oh, I think he, I I, honestly, Carrie, I think one of the revelations I have had about Max recently is, how courageous and brave he was to hang on as long as he did, given the despair he felt. Uh, you know, I think he understood at, to some level, not certainly not to the the degree that that it actually happened of of the hole he would be leaving in our lives. And I think that's a reflection of how much pain he was in that. You know, he just needed the pain to stop. Mm-hmm. But do you think he was communicating that in some way? Well, he was using the services of the mental health center on campus. And, you know, we we did speak with them after his death. And they say he was not showing ideation to a degree that they felt it was necessary to intervene. I see. That he was still discussing plans and that he was still talking about the future and that that is a big uh, red flag for them. You know, discussing things that are going to happen in the future means that you see a future. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, they whiffed. You know, the, the, they missed it and I think they struggle with that as well, you know, as do we all, that we couldn't help him. Earlier in our conversation, you, I think you talked about some of this, what inevitable guilt, human guilt, and I think you also used the word judgment. Have you sensed, and and I want to ask this in a way that acknowledges that I don't think people come to that kind of judgment out of any sense of malevolence. Maybe in some ways it's a protective kind of emotion. But I wonder if you have sensed that there are, you know, some some people keep you at a distance because it enables them to say, that wouldn't happen in our family, and there is an element of judgment to that. 
Oh, yeah. I, I don't think there's any question. Uh, you know, we had relationships change. Friends who stepped forward and friends who stepped back. I, I, didn't, I didn't really begrudge that. I, I just felt like people showed who they are in a moment of crisis. And I just decided I was going to focus a lot more on the people who stepped forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, I, I, I had enough to deal with. I just wasn't going to worry about the people who, who stumbled and fumbled or receded from us. It just it didn't matter to me. I asked if you would read a portion from, this is later in, in the memoir, but I wondered if you'd just tell us a little bit about kind of where you are in the arc of this um, as you put these words down. Well, this was right at the end of the first year of mourning. You know, it was about a year after Max had died. And you know, going through those first evers was just <laughs> rough. Uh, first holidays without Max, the first vacations without Max, the first birthdays without Max. And obviously at the end of a year, you sort of look back and you measure your loss, but you also begin to understand how far you have come since those early days of such unrelenting pain. And I think that's where I was at that moment. Okay. As I emerged from the first year without Max, I began to see the perspective necessary to understand the permanence and nature of grief. Carrying that bag of cement every day exhausted me, but I began to understand that the pain wouldn't be acute every day. I began to see that when the pain grew acute, the next day, or maybe the day after that, wouldn't be as bad. I just had to lean into the pain, accept it, and wait for it to recede. I had learned enough to see that the grief would be endless, that it surged from the same fount as the love I had for Max. Making that connection between grief and love made it easier to withstand the pain of loss. I'm not a fan of advice worthy of greeting cards. But after Max died, one of our neighbors, whose husband had died suddenly and unexpectedly a few years earlier, repeated this to me. A griever is like a beachcomber at the shore. Sometimes the waves wash over your ankles. Sometimes they wash over your head. Either way, the waves recede. The first year of mourning ended. The waves had washed over our heads quite a few times. We dried ourselves off and continued walking along the shore. Ivan Maisel, reading from his memoir, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye. Um, I think that brings us back, that, that beachcomber image brings us back to where we started with that image that that you wrote about, which is kind of this this ball in a body of water that you're trying to keep submerged and is has its own force, and you have to at some, I guess at some point, 
acknowledge that you cannot control it. I mean, when I think about the beachcomber image, I think you don't know if this will be the day that the waves wash over your head. And relinquishing that control or that illusion of control. (laughs) Yes. Man, right? Is that part of what you've learned? Oh, look, Carrie, and this was hard to accept, but I am a better person now and I am a more empathetic person. Uh, There's a lot of small stuff I don't sweat anymore. And the part that's hard to accept is is understanding how I came upon that wisdom. You know, it took the death of my son for me to experience that and to learn that. And that's, you know, to, to feel as if I am somehow benefiting from my son's death is is pretty harsh. But... The fact is, this is what happened, and you have two choices. I would much rather be the troglodyte emotionally that I used to be if, if it meant that Max was still here. Uh, but he died, and I, I, and I grew from it. And you know, maybe it's a you – know, somebody said to me, well, maybe it's a gift from Max, and – you know, that's as I just got through reading, that's a little sugary for me, but, <laughs> but maybe that's what it is. I mean, I think in some ways what you've just said is what you mean. I pulled out something from near the end of the book where you're talking about how your, your grief changed as time created some distance. And you say, you must calculate how much of you to leave behind how much of him to bring with you. I mean, what you just described of this absolute necessity of change, I think speaks to that. What what do you think? Oh, I I don't think there's any question. I mean, you, I I would love to have stayed in that fetal position I was in, you know, uh, after he died. It was comfortable. Uh, compared to what to going on, but two weeks after his body was found, my nephew got married. So, am I going to deny myself and my family the the joy of that marriage because Max died? Uh, so we talked about it, and the four of us came to the wedding. You know, did we enjoy it? I'm not going to tell you that we really enjoyed it a lot, but I think you have to understand that your life goes on, and just because this really bad thing happened to you doesn't preclude good things from continuing to happen as well. And if you deny yourself those good things, you've lost again. You've said it. I mean, you can't stay back. We can't stay back where Max was. One last question here. You said a little earlier that you have been clear with your daughters and your wife that this is your story. This is the way you experience the grief of Max's loss. Yes. I guess I wondered if there has been 
what what the conversation was like, knowing that this was going to be a very public experience of that grief. I mean, writing a writing a memoir as you've done, and then getting out on national television and doing radio interviews about it. Was that something that your family said, sure, you go out and do that, we're not, we're not in that, or what will this be like for all of us? I would describe it as their emotional generosity has, has been boundless in terms of allowing me, they all know I communicate best with my fingertips on a keyboard hand. I emailed each of them the manuscript and said, read this. Mm-hmm. And now's the time to tell me what you think. And and if there's passages you're not comfortable with, I'll fix them. And if I can't fix them, I'll send them their money back. You know, me writing this book is not as important as our the relationship the four of us have. And they had you know they had some edits and some changes, and there are some things we discussed. But by and large, they've been very generous in in letting me put this out there. Mm-hmm. Ivan Maisel's book is called I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye. Ivan, thank you. Carrie, it, it's been a uh, it's been a privilege. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas on NPR News with Carrie Miller. The conversation you just heard mentioned suicide. If you or a loved one are struggling, you can get free confidential support by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. 